0: Well, I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. Our study will come from the book of Mark, and our reading will come from verses 66 through 72. We have been going through the gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and here we are in the last day of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ before he goes to the cross and dies for sinners. The scriptures read in Mark chapter 14, verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely You are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Failure is something that a majority of people run into. Failing is something that we run from. Failing is something that we often fear. Failing in a class, failing in an exam, failing at your job, failing to be the leader in particular groups, maybe even your family. Failure is something that we very much dislike. Sometimes, however, failure is all too common. In his book, Break Open the Sky, Stephen Bauman writes, despite our near-phobic fear of failure, the facts suggest that it's actually a common, almost universal experience. 75%, he writes, of venture capital-backed startups fail. 95% do not meet the initial expectations. 40% of CEOs don't last 18 months. 70 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail to add shareholder value. 81% of new hires, that's 4 out of 5, don't work out. 99% of new patents never earn a penny. 95% of new products introduced in a given year fail. 68% of IT projects fail to meet their goals. of New Year's resolutions end in failure, and 100% of all human bodies will fail. Alexander Poe was right when he said, to err is human. Few people in the Bible are more familiar with failure than the Apostle Peter. In Luke chapter 5, verse 5, when they were fishing and Jesus told him to throw the net on the other side of the boat, they might get a catch. Peter failed to trust Jesus and reluctantly threw it over the other side, only to haul in a boatload of fish. Mark 8, 32, Peter rebuked Jesus, of all people, for talking about his suffering, his death, and his future resurrection, and Jesus had to rebuke him back. Matthew 14, 20 to 30, Peter at first, he had his eyes on Jesus and was walking on the water when he failed to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. He looked at the storm and began to sink. But Mark 14, through 72, here in this text today, perhaps there is no greater failure that happened in the life of Peter than his own denial of Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times Peter denies, not even knowing Jesus. He would cry out, in the course of a couple of hours, he would deny him three times. Peter was very, very familiar with failure. Peter was bold, he was brash, he was impulsive, he was overconfident of his own self, and here was a monumental failure. The context in which we are looking at in this particular text today comes after the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. About a thousand people or upwards of a thousand soldiers, temple guards, religious leaders had come with clubs and swords and torches to come to arrest Jesus. And they arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They haul him off first to Annas' house. Annas was the former high priest. For the interrogation phase, the first of three phases of his religious, religious trial, they take him to Annas' house in which they question Jesus, and Jesus says to them, Annas, why are you questioning me? You should be asking those who are the witnesses. I I was publicly teaching all the time, and he pointed out to them that they had no right to ask him questions. They were to ask those who were witnesses, but he was trying to garner, Annas was, trying to garner some sort of charge they could lay into Jesus. Well, after they could not Pin him on something that he would say, Annas sends him off to Caiaphas for the arraignment arraignment of Jesus. Annas was the kingpin he was sort of the Sadducee kingpin of that sort of organization. He had a number of sons that had become high priest. Caiaphas was his son-in-law and they lived in the same compound. In those days they would build houses that would be in a sort of a square or rectangle. Houses would be connected and there would be Annas perhaps on one side, probably Caiaphas on the other side of this courtyard, which would be in the center, which would open up to the sky. And it's in this courtyard when Jesus is transferred from Annas's to Caiaphas' house, a very short distance, a very short distance that we find this scene here. It is in the courtyard of the high priest, in which there are a number of soldiers, in which there are other people, such as the servants, in which Peter is found there, following along at a distance. He's following along at a distance. He's sort of hanging out there, desirous to find out what would become of Jesus, probably eavesdropping in, if he could, to see what would happen, warming himself by the fire, along with some of the soldiers. At first, when he came to that compound, of course, he wouldn't be allowed to let in. There was a gate that would be there, and usually a servant to the gate, and perhaps this girl who would be one who would be the gatekeeper. But it says in John eighteen sixteen that there was another disciple who was known to the high priest. He went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So there are two there. And that individual traditionally is known to be the Apostle John. So there's the Apostle John, and there's Peter. They're warming themselves. They're in this courtyard, and Mark 14, 54 tells us again that Peter had been tagging along, hanging out with the officers, warming himself by the fire, as Jesus would have been in the trial. And that's where we pick up the account here in verse 66. The text says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Now, this account of Peter's denial is in all four Gospels. And she says a little bit different phrases in each. It could have very well been that she would have asked him in different ways in this first, first questioning that he was with Jesus. In this first statement she confronts him with a positive ID you were with Jesus the Nazarene and immediately fear overtook Peter and he denied it he said i neither know nor understand what you are talking about and he went out onto the porch Matthew's account adds in Matthew 26:70 that he denied it before them all in other words this servant girl comes She apparently says it loud enough so that others, perhaps by the fire, who were also warming themselves, overhear her, I.D., Peter. And he denies it before them all. Exposed, he lied and denied Jesus. Strike one. He goes out on the porch, perhaps to regain his composure, perhaps to avoid the furtherance of more questions, Servant girl, in verse 69, saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. Now, along with Matthew 26.71 and Luke 22.58, it's not just her on the second time that identifies Peter. There are at least two others. One is another servant girl, and another, when Peter says, man, I do not know, he's speaking to some guy, whoever it is, there's at least three of them, and the pressure mounts on him. The pressure mounts on him as a few have recognized him. This is one of them, but he again, verse 70, denied it. Strike two. Now, after a little while, it says in verse 70, and Luke 22:59 59 tells us that it had been after an hour had passed. So this was not an account in which there were three denials, one right after the other. This occurred over an hour at least, maybe up to two hours or so. And after a little while, verse 70, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean too. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Now here, they identify him as a Galilean. How? It's not because I think of how he looked. He didn't necessarily look different. Galileans, however, were often mentioned in the Talmud that they were not able to distinguish between several of the guttural sounds in the way that they spoke. So by his speech, they could tell he wasn't around from these parts. He wasn't a local. He was a Galilean. Now he says whatever he says in this last denial of anything he can say to deny Christ first he he is cursing he is cursing Be, but he began to curse it says now this wasn't the cursing that sometimes we might think where he saying bad words what he is doing in this curse it comes from the greek word anathema which Means to be accursed, what he is doing, and there's no object there. He is cursing himself. In other words, he is saying, I be cursed, I be cursed if I am lying. I am to be cursed. Secondly, he swears, he swears, meaning that he is making a solemn pledge. He is swearing upon whatever it is. He swears, I do not know this man you were talking about. And people will do that. People will do that when they want to up their integrity, so to speak. People will say things like, I swear on the grave of so-and-so, or God strike me dead if I am lying. And this is what Peter is doing right here. So he curses, he swears. Thirdly, when Peter says, I do not know what this man you are talking about, what he is doing here is he's evoking a rabbinic, a common rabbinical law of a formal legal denial When you're denying something in a formal way, you say, I do not know what you are talking about in that phrase. He's evoking that. So he curses, he swears, he makes a formal denial, and fourthly, Peter doesn't even name the name of Jesus as if to say, I have no idea who you're talking about. You know, Peter's denial here wasn't some knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't something that he blurted out impulsively. Perhaps maybe the first time, but not the second, not the third. There had been a good amount of time, especially with the third, and over an hour had passed. He had had time, to, first, second. He went out at first to talk or think about himself or whatever it might be on the porch after the first denial. Then there was an hour that would pass after his second denial in which he would think about it and decide whether or not he was going to acknowledge or deny the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't under some coercion either. He wasn't under some sort of intimidation. He wasn't under some sort of duress. It wasn't as if the high priest had come and accosted him. It wasn't as if he had been arrested by the Roman soldiers who were questioning him or anything of that sort. They weren't beating him. They weren't threatening him. No. The first question came from a servant girl, unidentified by name. And then others who were unidentified, perhaps people who didn't have a significant social status within that compound, but they identified him, simply pointing out that he was a follower of Jesus and he folded. Peter utterly failed and he denied Christ. Peter failed, he denied Christ and that denial is found in all four Gospels. Why? Why was it included? After all, I'm sure Peter would have been very ashamed of that. Well, I think it's because this account stands in stark contrast to our Lord Jesus Christ. To Jesus who was arrested, he was interrogated, he was humiliated, he was roughly treated, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was crucified unjustly, yet he did not sin, he did not fold Neither in personal vengeance nor unrighteous anger, Jesus didn't display, he didn't strike back. Peter is simply confronted in contrast by a servant girl who says, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Then two more times he folds and cowers in fear. Three times he denies the Lord Jesus. You know what? We need God's help, don't we? We need the help of God Peter's account stands in stark contrast to Jesus, and we can learn some very practical lessons from this text. We can learn some very practical lessons, some very real lessons from this text, from the account of Peter's denial. I think the Lord wants us to learn these things. The first lesson we can learn is that we need to be humble about our own spiritual maturity. We need to be humble about our own spiritual maturity. Even though Jesus told him, in Mark 14, just a number of verses earlier, in verse 29, Jesus had told him he would deny him, but Peter said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Everybody else is going to fold. Everybody else is going to deny. Everybody else is going to leave Jesus, but I won't. And Jesus tells him, you will, three times, and then a cock will crow a second time. You know what? He was very much overconfident. He was very much overconfident in his spiritual strength, what he thought he could do on his own. He pledged his loyalty vocally. He thought more highly of himself than he ought to. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Spiritual pride looks down and says, You know what? I'd never do that. Spiritual pride says, I'd never say something like that. Spiritual pride says, well, you know what? I would never be like that. It's a failure to realize that if it were not for the grace of God, we would say that. If it were not for the grace of God, we would be like that. If it were not for God's grace, we would do and be the same thing. We would deny Christ. If it were not this, for the grace of God in Peter's case, we would just be like Peter. In fact, if it were not for the grace of God, we would be lost in our own sin. We need to be humble about our own spiritual maturity. Secondly, we need to think before we speak. We need to think before we speak. Mark 14, 31, again, the passage before. Peter kept saying insistently, repeatedly, insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all were saying the same thing also. All the rest of the disciples chimed in, that they said, we will die with you. We will not deny you. Peter was so very impulsive in the things that he would say. He didn't think before he spoke. James 1.19 instructs us, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What are you like? What are you like? You know, once words are spoken, they cannot be retracted, can they? Can you think of a time, perhaps you've said something, you wish you could take back those words. Maybe it was some poor joke Maybe it was some sort of slight. Maybe it was something you spoke out of anger. Maybe it was something you said out of frustration. Maybe it was something that was just plain mean. Now imagine if you had lived 2,000 years ago during the time of the Bible and God chose to inscripturate that for all of eternity as an example of what not to say, how ashamed we would feel. I'm sure Peter would have wished that he would not have said what he said. We need to think before we speak. We need to be slow to speak. You know, maybe you're the type that likes to speak your mind. Maybe you know people who like to speak their mind because they value transparency. Maybe you're the type that likes to think out loud all of the time. You know, Proverbs ten nineteen tells us, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. How wise are you and I? For Peter, this wasn't the case. He had to learn, and we need to learn as well. We need to take to heart to be slow to speak, to think before we speak. So we need to be humble about our own spiritual maturity. We need to think before we speak. Thirdly, we need to pray for God's help in temptation, both before and in. We need to pray for God's help before and in temptation. When they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14, verse 38, the text there tells us that Jesus comes to them. He found them speaking, verse 37. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He had come. They were sleeping. Luke tells us that they were sleeping because of great sorrow. They were going to see Jesus uh, and being arrested and taken to the cross. They didn't stay up to pray that temptation would not overtake them like Jesus had instructed. When they had asked Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Lord, teach us how to pray, Jesus taught them how to pray. And in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, one of the things that Jesus teaches them in their prayer, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're to ask of God, that he would help us before and in temptation. You know, one of the prayers that I prayed for myself over many years is to ask God to help me, protect me from my own sinful heart. I'm a sinner, as we all are, and I need God's help every day. So be humble about our own spiritual maturity, to think before we speak to pray for God's help in temptation, and fourthly, to realize that God will restore broken failures who turn to him. God will restore broken, humble failures who turn to him. You know, we have all failed in many ways, but Peter, in verse 72 Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he began to weep. Do you know what Luke, in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 61, Luke fills in that picture, and he says, immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed in the verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? They must have been taking Jesus from one building to another. And there, Peter is vehemently denying that he even knows this man. He is cursing. He is swearing. He is saying this Jewish legal phrase. He is denying loudly. Others are hearing. And there, Jesus is walking by And he sees the eyes of Jesus as the rooster crows and he's talking. That look from the Lord Jesus must have convicted Peter. It is a look I'm sure he would never, ever forget. And Luke 22, verse 62 says, And he went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He knows that he had failed, and he failed miserably in the greatest way. Peter's response was a humble, remorseful, weeping. We know that this can happen. We know that it can happen even to people who love the Lord, Peter's life later on will be with the disciples. His love is shown in the fact that when he hears about the empty tomb, he runs to the empty tomb. He rejoices when the Savior is risen. But I'm sure that discouragement continued on in his life, for he had failed in the most public and visible way. John 21, if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 21, John chapter 21, this account of Jesus and Peter is one that is important to note in relationship to God restoring one who has failed. These seven disciples in John chapter 21, for the first time in three years, they are on their own. Jesus had provided for their every need. Jesus had already always been with them. This is an account that happens after Jesus' resurrection. He had been there to comfort them when they were worried. He corrected them when they were mistaken or confused. He protected them from danger, always stepped in to meet their every need. And now these seven disciples are on their own. Jesus had risen from the dead. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 7 and 10, Jesus did instruct them to return to Galilee. But their assignment in returning to Galilee was to tell everyone about Jesus' resurrection, especially his followers. He would tell his followers that he was alive, and Jesus would meet them there. Can you imagine? Back in John chapter 14, it was the evening of the Passover and they were crushed because all of their dreams of a physical kingdom had come collapsing down upon them and they had no idea what was going to happen even though Jesus tried to tell them. And they just were not very, very happy whatsoever. In fact, they were filled with sorrow. They were filled with sorrow, and so you can imagine the elation of these disciples as soon as they not only hear of Jesus' resurrection, but they see Jesus, and they spend time with Jesus. And then Jesus gives them this commission, this commission in which they are to go and tell others that he is alive. And you would imagine that they would be so stoked to go and tell everyone that Jesus is alive, that they've seen him, that they have spent time with him, that he is the one who is the true Messiah. But what do they do? What do they do? Chapter 21 of John, verse 3. They go up to Galilee. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. They said, you know what, we're going to go back to our old ways. That's what we know how to do best. The stuff, yes, we were excited before, but now, you know, I don't know. This is all that I'd like to do. I'm not cut out for this. And I'd probably hazard to guess that at this time, Peter is still, still feeling terrible about his denial. Rather than loving God with all of his heart, they decided, let's go back to doing what we do the best. We're good fishermen. Well, at least sometimes. Not tonight, for they caught nothing. They went back because they're still depending upon What is it that I can do in my own strength? What is it that I can do with my own gifts? What is it that I can do that doesn't depend upon Jesus? Well, in John chapter 21, the account is that Jesus is seen on the beach. Disciples come to Jesus. Jesus makes breakfast for them. And in verse 15 of John 21, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Again, I'm sure even during this time, Peter had still been discouraged by his past failures. His past failures became an anchor to him moving forward in obedience to God because he still trusted himself. He had failed miserably. He had failed publicly, and he had failed grievously such that he wept bitterly. And he just went back to say, I am fishing. You know, Jesus gave Peter his name. Peter, which means a rock. That's what he wanted him to be. But when Peter acted like his old self, he would call Peter Simon, his old name. That's sort of like a parent who calls you by your full name when you're in trouble as a child. It says in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? When Jesus asks him that for the very first time, Jesus uses the word agapao. That's the word for an unconditional love. Peter, do you love me unconditionally more than these? These being the fishing gear, the fishing expedition, the fishing occupation. Do you love me more than these things that the world would have for you, your occupation? That word for love is an unconditional love. It's the same word that is used when we speak of uh, husbands love your wives. It's a self-sacrificial love. That's what Jesus says here to Peter. He says here, do you love me with this self-sacrificial love more than all of these things? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. But he doesn't use the word agapao, the unconditional love. In Peter's reply, he uses phileo, this love, this brotherly love. Friendship love, family type of love, in which we get the word Philadelphia, this phileo type of love. Do you love me unconditionally? Yes, I I love you like a family, like a brother. Tend my lambs. That's what Jesus says. Peter was being commissioned and reminded, this is what I want you to do, Peter, Jesus says. He's being commissioned to to the followers of Jesus, but he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Do you unconditionally love me more than the other things? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says again, yes, I love you like a brother. Then Jesus reiterates his commission to him for the third time. He says, do you Simon, son of John, love me? And he uses the same word that Peter uses which is phileo. Do you love me like a brother? Perhaps you might think that it might come across, I think, more like, do you love me unconditionally? Yes, I love you like a brother. Do you love me unconditionally? Yes, I love you like a brother. Do you even love me like a brother? Peter said, what? You know all things, and he was grieved in his heart. He was grieved in his heart, and yet, Jesus continued to say, tend my sheep. Andreas Kostenberger, a commentator, says, quote, perhaps at long last Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength and has realized the hollowness of affirming his own loyalty in a way that relies more on his own power of will than on Jesus' enablement. Likewise we should soundly distrust self-serving pledges of loyalty today that betray self-reliance rather than a humble awareness of one's own limitations in acting on one's best intentions. Unquote. Jesus wanted Peter to love him unconditionally with a love that only God can enable and provide that we would love him. That is by the grace of God that we can even have that type of love. Peter wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus wanted him to only follow him by the strength that God provides, not in the pride that we might have in our own strength. He wanted to restore Peter And place him in that position of leadership. But only would it come when we depend upon God. Because God desires to restore humble, broken failures who will turn to him. We have all failed in many ways, so many times. We've all been like Peter, perhaps in days of denying Christ by not saying something when we ought to about who Christ is, not defending Jesus when he is perhaps mocked, failing to share our testimonies when opportunities come to reach out, failing to be the leader that we ought to be, failing by sinning against God time and time again. And yet we're not to live in the past, but to look forward to the future, to learn from the past that we might not do it again and realize that it is through the prayers that we come to God in resistance of temptation, the reliance upon God, the humility of realizing that we are not going to succeed by our own strength to think before we speak and to come to God in humble repentance knowing that God desires to restore us in our relationship with him every time we fail him. That is the opportunity that we have this morning as we come before the Lord's table, as we come in this time of communion as a church family, as we come remembering the suffering, the sacrifice, the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross for our sins. It is a time of communion in which Christians take. They take of some bread, symbolic of the body of Christ given on the cross for our sins. They take of some juice or wine, symbolic of the blood that was shed for the atonement of our sin. And we take these things in thanksgiving, as well as in remembrance of the sin that Jesus took on himself, that he died for sinners such as us. The scriptures tell us that this is for believers, but it also tells us that we are to take it in a worthy manner, in a manner in which we realize and come before Christ in humility and recognition that we are undeserving and we give God thanks for his son. We come as well in a time of confession of sin. For 1 Corinthians 11.27 tells us, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment uh, to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So we take a minute or so in silent prayer together, as we come before the Lord in confession of our own sin, asking God to convict us of our sin, that we might come in repentance and recognition that we are undeserving of the grace of God as we give thanks for his Son who died for our sins. Let's bow together in silent prayer for a minute as we ask of God for his forgiveness and his grace. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for the bread which we are about to partake. For we realize, O God, that your Son suffered greatly by bearing our sin on the cross. His body was given for us that we might have life. And Father, we remember that And we desire, O Lord, to remember and honor him. We also give you thanks, O God, for that which we are to drink, the fruit of the vine, O God. For it was his shed blood that made atonement for our sin, that covered over our sin. And Father, we praise you for your great love and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take and eat and remember the body of our Lord Jesus as it was given on the cross for our sins. Let us also take and drink of the fruit of the vine, representative as the blood of our Lord Jesus shed for the atonement of our sin. O Father in heaven, we give you thanks for redemption was purchased by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus not with anything that this world could ever offer. And Father, we proclaim his death until he comes once again to take us home. We pray, O God, and desire that that would come soon, as we say, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And Father, what a joy it is, what a privilege it is to be called children of God. In Jesus' name most precious name, amen.